Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Hey everyone, happy 2017. Welcome to GradCast, this is the official SOGS radio show and podcast, uh, where we talk to graduate students here at Western about their research, what they do, and get to know them a little bit. I am Susan Anthony, and today I am co-hosting with Tanya Nagpal. Hello everyone, Happy New Year. And today we're talking with Emily Clayton. Emily Clayton is a grad student in the Department of Biology, as as am I, so we know each other from the hallways. You're in Susanna Kahalmi's lab. Yes. And we do very different things, so I'm I'm sorry I'm going to have to ask you a lot of questions about what it is you do because I'm it's uh, really interesting it's really into the sort of biochemistry world it's how things work inside the cell and that's really exciting because we tend to you know we're walking around we see how we walk we see that things but you're working on things we can't see so please tell us like what it is you do in a sentence like what do you do uh, well I study essentially the relationship between the sequence of a protein and the enzymates or the protein it creates. So how does a sequence define what the protein does once it's already in made? Okay, cool. So that's like, um, now forgive me if I'm wrong, but uh, protein, that's, that's not like what we have in our diets. We, our bodies all make proteins. Yes. Every cell makes all different kinds of proteins. Okay. Yeah. And um, what, what is a sequence of a protein? Like what kind of sequence do you mean? Well, if we go all the way first, let's start from DNA. So uh, yes, we know that. That one I know. Even though I'm a field biologist, I know DNA. <laughs> so most people are familiar with a DNA sequence. That DNA gets made into an RNA sequence, which is basically an instruction manual for how to make a protein. So once that RNA or the instruction booklet is made, the protein is uh, created from that manual into, and it gets folded up into the shape that's going to be and the way it needs to be to work. Okay, so a protein, sorry, uh, a protein, you say it's it's a shape, like, does it matter what shape it is? Like, because we know DNA, it just, all it matters is, like, the the numbers and the, uh, you know, from start to finish. Yeah, we know it's in a spiral, they're all in a <laughs> spiral, and it's, like, it matters is the, the G's, the T's, the A's, the C's, uh, which comes first, you know, the pattern in that way, but proteins, it's different. Yes, so you're right. DNA sequence is really just CGs, A's, and T's. Um, An mRNA sequence is amino acids, which can interact with each other in different ways. And that's what makes the shape. So once you have your mRNA sequence, which is made up of these amino acids in the end, uh, they interact with each other, which fold everything together. So this, what amino acids you have determines what the shape of the protein will be and what it will do. So earlier you mentioned enzymes. So what does the enzyme do in this whole, in this protein, I guess, story that you've just told us? So not every protein is an enzyme. Um, Enzymes are little biological units that can catalyze a reaction. So they change one thing into another. So substrate to product. So like the magician of the cell world. Yeah. They they go (laughs) poof and now you're something else. Sure. Essentially, yes. So you're saying so uh, protein enzymes are proteins, yes. but proteins can be other things yes. too, right? Yes. Okay. Can. 
But you're interested in the enzymes. Yes, I study a family of enzymes. So for me, really, enzymes is all there is, basically. So tell us about this family of enzymes. What, what are they called and what's special about this specific group? So I'm actually a plant biologist, and I study a family of enzymes called orogenate dehydratases, um, or we'll just call them ADTs for short and make it easier. Uh, what they do is they synthesize phenylalanine, which is itself an amino acid. So phenylalanine is an amino acid that is used to make proteins, but it's also used by plants for a bunch of different things. So phenylalanine is used to make plant sunscreen so they don't get UV damage, um, as well as a bunch of protectant molecules from bugs or herbivores. So I study an enzyme that makes uh, phenylalanine, essentially. So phenylalanine, you say, is an amino acid. And amino acids make up proteins. Enzymes are types of proteins. Mm -hmm. So this enzyme, in a way, kind of helps create itself or a piece of itself. Essentially, it's creating a component of its own makeup. So the question then becomes, which came first, the phenylalanine (laughs) or the enzyme, right? It's like the chicken and the egg. Exactly. Never really know. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, that's cool. So phenylalanine, you say, is is used in sunscreen products? Is that Well, that's just what I call the molecule that plants produce. I don't think it's actually used in sunscreen, just plants create compounds that help protect them from UV damage, so it's essentially sunscreen for plants. A plant sunscreen, yeah. yeah. So what, uh, you're talking about plants. I always ask this because it's really important. What plant do you study? I study Arabidopsis thaliana, or just Arabidopsis. It's the typical, if you ask someone if they study plants in a molecular biology lab, it's probably going to be Arabidopsis because it's a model for plant of growth and development. So it's like the fruit fly or the lab rat. Yep. Literally, it's the fruit fly of the plant people. Yeah, I think we had some other people on a while back who study Arabidopsis, and we were asking them what what's the common name for it. Are we going to check you on that one? Because they didn't know either. (laughs) We we learned it afterwards, didn't we? Is it? It's like field mustard. Ragweed was it? I don't, I don't know. I don't but know. that was that was it's the one the that we found. Okay, oh, cool, cool. <laughs> so it's it's one of those plants that um well, what does it look like and when you work with them? Well, I'm kind of the odd one out of my lab in that I haven't actually had to grow any plants yet. Um <laughs> Your plant science hasn't <laughs> yeah, had to grow plants. It's kind of it is. It sounds weird when you put it like that. <laughs> but I have started to grow them now and they're very small. They only grow maybe like a foot tall and they're really thin. They look kind of sad actually (laughs) but they don't look like a typical garden plant that you would think of they're really small and kind of spindly and they're only about a foot high which makes them really easy to grow in a lab so do you with these enzymes are you now trying to find out what other functions they have within this plant or exactly what are you looking for then so we found in our lab previously that some of these family members um, can actually do two different things and i'm trying to figure out like your enzyme yeah it 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 is a magician with more than one trick? Yes. Ah. So I'm trying to figure out how it can do that because we don't know. If you just look at it, you can't tell what part of it is allowing for that different function. So I'm trying to basically make small changes to try and understand what part of its sequence is telling it to do job A or telling it to do job B. Are they linked? Can you make it only do job A and not the second job anymore? 
things like that. So it's whether or not, um, from what I remember about enzymes, they have, because like you said in protein, they're a structure. Yes. And they usually have a place on that structure in which they do their magic. They do. So it's called, that is called the active site. That's not it's where the too hard to remember. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so usually, yeah, that is where the biochemical reaction is happening. Um, but it's not just changes to that one site that can affect how things work. If you make a change somewhere farther along from the active site, it can change the entire shape of the protein so the active site isn't the same anymore, even though you didn't change that active site itself. So now going backwards, if you change the shape, then it'll change its function. So potentially we have two different shapes or two different sequences that this enzyme can create. Uh, Yeah, essentially. We're still trying to figure out exactly how that works, but essentially, yes, if you change the shape, you probably change the function. And it can be a big change or a really minor change. It can have, it just depends. It can have big impacts or it can have smaller, more subtle impacts. And that's what we're trying to figure out right now. So as a plant biologist, what does your day look like? Do you kind of, like, do you just play with how you're changing the sequencing? How does that work? Uh, Well, when I first started, it was a lot of computer work because I had to, I, I'm not growing any plants, so I was basically looking at the sequences, trying to design my changes, and then I had to do, I had to make all the changes. So I had to do a lot of cloning, which is essentially shuttling the sequence I designed into different hosts to eventually get it in a way that I can test it and determine if my change made a difference. So, all right, well, so when you, this, this is where I, I know some people in my lab do this, but I'm always yeah. confused when they say that. So do you, like, go into the DNA and take a bit out? Or do you go into the RNA and go to the messenger and go, hey, let's change the message? How do you how do you cut and paste things in well, there? Well, there's a couple different ways that you can actually do that now. Um, thankfully, I do not do any of the really crazy ones like CRISPR. Um, I, heard, I heard a podcast about that. That was a little <laughs> insane. Yeah. yeah, it's a little complex. Side note, what is CRISPR? Um, it's a gene editing tool, so okay. you can go into an organism and change, uh, you know, a p- specific piece of DNA that you want to be changed. Um, and it's very specific, so you don't get a lot of extra changes that you didn't intend to happen. Very precise. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't do that. So thankfully, my life is a lot easier. Um, but I, all my changes are are just single point mutations. So I only change one base. In the DNA sequence. Okay, so yeah, that's it's one very G small. or one T. Yeah. So you turn a T into a G. Yeah. Okay. And I just do that by regular old PCR. And that actually makes a change to the structure of the protein sometimes? It can if it's in a key spot. So, so that's what I'm trying in, to figure out. Uh, yeah. PCR? Oh, How does yeah. that work? <laughs> so still my question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, back to basics here. Okay, so <laughs> PCR is a way to quickly and uh, I guess precisely generate a lot of the same copy of a gene. So if you extract what you want, a gene, from, say, a plant, you can PCR it and you'll end up with millions of copies instead of just two or three or four copies. And it takes a couple hours and have a ton of material to work with. And it, yeah, that's basically how it works. So taking the PCR, which is, so you picked a gene, you're like, I want billions of these. Yep. Then how do you get it back into the plant, or how do you test it from there? So uh, 
it kind of depends what you're going to do with it or do you do it on like a petri dish so i you can get it back into the host organism once you're done you can extract it change it and put it back that's called transformation crazy um (laughs) i'm actually putting my sequences in yeast uh just because they grow faster they're easier um it's easier to tell if you know you actually put it back successfully um, and we have a really nice quick way of testing if my changes worked in yeast, which are harder to do in plants. You don't have to wait for them to grow up, right? No, like two like days that. and they're fully grown two instead days. of plants, which is six weeks. Ah, uh, yeah. Then you get, and then you can know if you go on to the next thing, yeah. right? Exactly. What yeast do you use? I'm just curious. I use baker's yeast. So oh, just regular. I got lots yeast. of that. Yeah. <laughs> so how long does it take to make a sequence change then? Uh, well, if everything works, <laughs> uh, only... When once you've checked it to make sure your change is there, maybe a couple weeks to a month, and okay. then you can work on getting it back into whatever organism you want, whether it's yeast or plants. Um, but things almost never work the way you <laughs> think they do, so it normally takes a lot longer. But so is it kind of like in terms of figuring out what sequence changed, kind of like trial and error, see what other people have done and hasn't worked, or how do you decide what change you're going to make? Um, well. I think a lot of the time it is trial and error. And for a lot of scientists, it's probably, oh, this is actually a mistake. But it did something <laughs> weird, so we should go check Not this a, out. The, the penicillin motif. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, oh, that was a mistake, but let's just see what happened. Exactly. And that happens a yeah. lot, actually. Oh, just That's the trick to science. Just go on vacation <laughs> and leave all your Petri dishes open. <laughs> well, yeah, you should see our labs when we got back after the holidays. Yeah, Mine so. was messy. <laughs> so is that, I guess that would be, like, I, I'm a kines- in kinesiology, so we don't do, like, the hard sciences. So is that, like, if it doesn't work, it's worthwhile to still let everyone know it doesn't work so that they don't spend their time doing the same sequence? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, there are some, you know, papers that are out there saying, you know, we tried A, B, C, and, you know, there's no effect. So that's one don't answer. Do it again. <laughs> it's still worth it to say it's not this rather than, you know, a, what people call a positive result, which is it is this. Isn't that usually when you get a positive result, you make a change, you sneak in all the stuff that didn't make a change? That's how you get your negative results in there? Yeah. But also in this case, like if there's a change that should make it, like a change in the sequence that should make a difference in the enzyme work, you're you're so sure it should because it's such a big change that, um, and it doesn't, that's pretty interesting too. Yeah. I think the negative results or things not going, I don't want to say negative results, but Mm -hmm. things not going as you expect are just as important as things working exactly how you'd expect them to be because you actually I think you learn more from things not working the way you expect and having to rethink your project or your idea or your methods um, rather than just having everything work perfectly so what have you personally found so you you've done some point mutations have you found anything interesting are you allowed to tell us um I can tell you I'm not allowed to tell you the the location of no, the no, point no. We understand that's um, heavily guarded. We but, don't think we'll be able to find it, yeah. even if you told us. Well, I could, you know, whip up something in my basement. <laughs> um, I've actually, I have some preliminary data. I've had a lot of contamination issues in the past year, so Ooh. I'm sort of hesitant to make any bold statements. But um, what I found is that a single change can basically switch an enzyme from job A to job B. And vice versa. So that that's surprising because I would have thought it would take more than just one. I Yeah, I think a lot of people <laughs> would have thought it would take more than just one. Uh, I think for a long time, the thought was whole domains, like whole big chunks of the sequence are what 
determine what it does, but it looks like small, like one small change can actually make a huge difference. So tell us how one small change could make a difference. I know that that's kind of sounds like, just, just explain to me what you just said, but it, it's more of a, why does one change cascade into something bigger in the sort of, you say the structure of the enzyme? Yeah. So there isn't really, I don't think there's just one answer. The main thing would be, again, it would change the shape. And but that's what I mean. Like, how does it change a shape? Really? So if I give you an example from my protein. Oh, yeah. It has, the way it looks is it's got two sections and they're connected by a little like hinge, basically. Okay. And when it's working, they're together. Like the hinge is bent, so it has the two pieces right beside each other. If you change a small or one amino acid or a small change, it changes the way the hinge is sitting. So it brings the pieces farther away, and it basically changes the active site, basically. So those two halves aren't together, and then it doesn't work the same way it did anymore, just because that one little hinge isn't up, it's down instead, or the other way around. So that's kind of scary if you think because there's a lot of like natural mutations in the world right yeah uh not all of them not all the mutations are going to be bad a lot of mutations happen that don't have any change um and some are good changes and some are bad changes so there's an example because you kind of trying to think about you know how does one little mutation in the genome create you know different organisms create different functions here's one example where one change can affect how an enzyme works therefore could how an animal works itself or sorry organism i'm so animal focused animal plants (laughs) yeah just organisms yeah Yeah. and i think slow buildups of that over time is what eventually makes those big changes that we can actually see Mm -hmm. but not every change is black and white like it's on or off sometimes it just it can gain a new function so it has two or three jobs instead or you know it just changes how fast it can go or how many you know different molecules it can recognize so it's not always bad and it doesn't always completely destroy the protein sometimes you get new interesting functions as well Um, so there's like a part of my knowledge that seems to be missing on this (laughs) and i I just want to like fill it in so you were talking about how you're like you're reprogramming these genes to see if it changes the enzyme to see what like the different how the different functions work is there a genetic component to the whole process of how these proteins, like they fold, right? Like they get molded into weird shapes. There's a lot of studies on that. Is that part, is that a sequence thing as well? Or is that something that happens outside or? Um, it's, it's both. So the DNA sequence, the way it is, determines what the protein sequence will eventually be. And the protein sequence is what makes it fold. So if you change, even though it's protein, if you change the DNA part, it will cascade down and change what the protein sequence looks like and then how it'll change. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So I'm trying to think back to first year. I remember there's like certain, um, certain amino acids that like to attract to each other and other amino acids that repel each other. So it's kind of like a string of uh, magnets or something and you, they crump all together and some like attach to each other because they're, and some are repelled by each other. Mm -hmm. So that creates their, clumped shape yeah that's essentially how it works um and if these changes that i'm talking about if it replaces one amino acid with a different one that doesn't like its neighbor anymore and they're supposed to attract but they don't anymore 
that will change the shape. So those attractions and yeah. repulsions, or even just neutral, it complete. That's how the protein folds on itself. Is those interactions or attractions between the amino acids. So earlier you said it takes up like up to a few weeks to make the sequence change. So why does it take that long? Uh, well, it takes that long mainly because you have to, and it's different for depending on how you're going to go about doing it. But the way I do it is more old school. So I have to design a primer, which I had described PCR to you guys before. The way it works when you want to amplify the DNA is you have to give it a little starting piece to go from, and that's called a primer. Mm -hmm. So you have to design those to make sure it's going to produce the sequence that you want in the end. So you have to design those carefully so that you end up with the right product at the end. Um, And then it's mainly just going through checks to make sure that, yes, it amplified. Yes, it's the right thing. And then I have to send it to be sequenced Mm -hmm. um, so they can tell me that, yes, this is the change that's there. It's the one I wanted. And it's the only one that's there. So this is the part that blew me away. You can take a sample and send it off to someone. Mm -hmm. And what do they they give you back? What is it when they sequence? What do they give you back? So they give you back a file that basically has all the G's, T's, A's, and everything from your sample. Yeah. So you can look at it and compare it with what your thing, your product should be, and then you can check. And a computer program will just do that. You just load the two sequences and it shows you that's the part always blew me away that you can go from some squidgy thing in a tube (laughs) and send mail it to somebody and they send you a file of all the letters i did that once you use like detergent and you shake it up and you use a little q-tip and you take it out and it's all that stuff is that is that is that what you do do you actually do that? Or is um, that like a way, way wait, simple thing? Wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, like in like wait, elementary I... school, you, you did a whole, ex- like a little experiment that you use like some detergent and stuff to take, oh, like to kind yeah. of yeah, I think shake up a cells. Just, and... I actually did that yeah. with bananas, I think. We do that yeah. in Let's Talk Science. Um, it yeah. is essentially that. Yeah, you extract everything from whether you're using bananas or plants or whatever. And you... Or your own skin cells. Yeah. Anything. You follow a special protocol or set of instructions that tells you how to prepare it. And then you send it away. They do, they have machines for sequencing, and then they just send you back their text results. And literally, they send you a computer file of letters. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm, like, thinking back to, like, first-year biology when we would, like, be so impatient to just get out of lab and, like, all this cool stuff is actually happening. Yeah, it is pretty amazing, actually, that they can turn that around in a couple days. So Ancestry.ca is doing it right now. Is it? true. Or 23andMe. That was a gift I got. No, I got Ancestry.ca. Oh, they have one too. I was wondering what you were doing with this. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, this is kind of a bit off of what we were talking about. I'm, I'm interested in why plants. Just, is there Why a... I studied plants? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone always asks me that. Yeah. Um, well, I get that question too. That's true. <laughs> why spiders? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think it's sort of, I did a fourth year research project and I was in a plant lab and it actually, as a fourth year student, I was kind of like, uh, I don't know, plants, everyone else wanted to be doctors and doing like human disease research. But I actually, plants are, they can make way more compounds than humans can. So phenylalanine that I mentioned earlier, we can't make that. Only plants and like bacteria and yeast can make it. And I, I just think plants are really cool. They do all, they have all kinds of adaptation mechanisms because they can't move. So 
All right. I'm, I'm just, as someone who, who's very herbivorous, I really <laughs> want to throw out there. Sorry, there's amino acid that you can only get from plants? Well, there's essential amino acids that you can't, that we can't synthesize ourselves. So you have to get them from plants. Yeah. Also like mammals. Vitamins. Yeah. Yes, I know. But I'm, I'm just trying to, trying to yeah. let people out there know, you know, keep, eat your eat vegetables. Your vegetables. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what, I guess, what excites you then when you're doing your research? Like, is it like when you see that your sequence actually made a difference or like what, I don't know, like as the plant biologist, what's that exciting moment for you? Um, I would say definitely when I got the results that that one small change made a difference. That's pretty, well, I can't really describe it, but it was pretty amazing. And I have, we have some other things that we're working on now, um, which is the same idea, like a small change that affects partners that the protein can pair with. Um, Oh, like like mating partners or? (laughs) Okay, sorry, I'm lost. (laughs) Um, So proteins can interact with other other proteins in the cell. Um, sometimes they don't need to to perform their job, and sometimes they have to pair up to perform whatever job they need to do. That's so romantic. Yeah, it is quite nice. <laughs> and it, it seems like it's like there's one answer will lead to another question. Like, is oh, that yeah. another thing that you've kind of found as you've been doing this? Oh, yeah. We found I was testing five different changes. Some of them worked and some of them didn't, even though they're all within 10 base pairs from each other. So the question is, okay... Why did that not work? It's right beside the one that did. Mm-hmm. And we're, well, we don't have an answer for that yet, but that always happens. You answer one question and then five more pop up and you just have to think about where you're going to go from there. So, yeah, where where do you want to take this? Do you want to carry on with this enzyme? Do you want to carry on with uh, uh, working with these point mutations? Like, or what would you like to do next? After my PhD next or, or within or- the next three? years next yeah well, that's well, <laughs> yeah. well just for instance say you know you found this change what, what do you want to do next with this research um I personally am really interested in just this whole idea of how sequence and function are related so not even just taking it outside of this uh like model enzyme family that I'm studying doing protein engineering protein designing um that's starting to be a really big field now where people can design their own proteins for a very specific purpose. And that's sort of the same idea. How do you go from basically making one from scratch? You have to understand how the sequence works to make a protein for a specific It's incredible, and it has such high scope of what you could possibly do if you could Mm -hmm. create protein that way. Yeah, so that's actually really caught my attention in the last little while. I would love to make a whole bunch of magicians (laughs) in my cells. Like, I create create all the magicians. I like that. So we're coming towards the end of our show. So if anyone wanted to learn more about your research or get in touch with you, do you have anything that we could uh, reach contact you with? Uh, our lab page website is egregiously out of date. So unfortunately, <laughs> no, you can always, um, if it's an undergrad or anyone really listening, you can come to our my office or my supervisor's office in Western Science. But we don't have a lab website or anything like that, unfortunately. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Emily. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Gradcast, uh, I want to put out one last thing. This is the first show of 2017, hey. and <laughs> we were having a discussion before the show started about you know who's out there listening because you know we shout into the dark and we don't know who's who's got us on the radio right now. So I 
am asking you, if you are a regular listener to GradCast, I would love for you to email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com and tell us why you listen and what you like and maybe what you don't like. It would be really great for us to hear about. Uh, besides that, if you are a grad student yourself and you want to come on and speak just like Emily did today, you can email us at the same email address. Just let us know you're interested. We are always looking for new and bright people, especially people in the NanoFab Lab who made a tiny snowman over the break. What? Yeah, yeah they made like a no. microscopic snowman. Oh, wow. um, Shout out to them. Please come on our show. Yeah. Yes, I, I was going to get in touch with them. Uh, GradCast is, of course, a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. We publish uh, or we do a live show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. And if you want to catch the podcast, if you can't make the radio every week, you can always get us on your phones at GradCast Radio. .ca and um, enjoy the extremely perplexing weather outside. Bye-bye. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.